The scripture reading this morning is from Genesis. Then the man said, This is, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth. Morning. We are in week two this morning of a six week parenting series. We had a preliminary discussion last week and sort of laid the groundwork. And everybody thought, including me, that we were going to get into the, the meat of the series this morning. So if you look on the back of your program, you see uh, Discipline and Instruction. That was supposed to be the, the title of this morning's message. Um, but something happened during the week. I, this, As I was preparing, this sermon just kind of took on a life of its own and took us in a different direction. I decided to go with it. Um, so we'll see what happens. This could be a disaster. Um, and I mean that very, very literally. It could be really bad. Um, but I, as, I, as I was studying this, it, I just became so gripped by this one idea, this one concept, um, and so convinced of the, the potential it had to make a difference, a long-term difference in people's, not just people's marriages, but people's families and for generations um, that I wanted to spend the whole morning on it. So it's a very narrow topic this morning. The subject, the, the title of the message, if you want to take out your insert inside, it's got the, the title, which is Priorities. Um, not very descriptive, but what, I'm, what we're talking about is the relationship between the ranking of the husband-wife relationship and the parent-child relationship, and how those two relationships are, going, are supposed to position themselves with respect to each other. Very narrow topic, and you might sound like it's more suitable for a psychology textbook than a sermon. We're going to look at some of the wisdom of Scripture on this um, and see some, some very interesting things. So it's weird in the narrowness of the focus. It's also weird in that we've got six points this morning instead of the, the normal three. Um, I put them up on the screen, actually, um, so that I don't forget them, and so you can keep me honest. So here, here they are. There's a prescribed order. That's the first point. We're just going to talk about what it is. A lot of people have things out of order. There's an acid test for knowing whether you've got things in the right order. And then fourth, what all this has to do with parenting. Fifth, giving your kids what they need. And sixth, moving forward. So we'll move quickly, obviously, since there's six of them. Um, And hopefully this isn't a disaster. Um, Before we get started, let's pray. Father, we come to you because you're the one that made us. We come to you for wisdom and understanding because you're the one that thought all of this up. You're the one that has the plan. And God, as we look this morning at your plan for parents and children, for husband and wives, I, I pray that we would be overwhelmed by the beauty of it, by the, the intelligence of it, that we'd be convicted about our failure to follow it, and that we would be strengthened and encouraged by you to, to set out on this path. It's your name we pray. Amen. So first, there is a prescribed order. What is it? If you look in your insert, this first passage under Roman numeral one, we've looked at this passage a lot, especially last year in the, during the marriage series. So some of this will be reviewed for those of you that were here for that. Let me read it. Then the man said, this is what, what Gary just read, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman 
because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What we said last week is that the biggest mistake we make in interpreting creation is to assume that it had to be this way. It's just inevitable that, that things would start out this way. So last week we said with kids that it's inevitable that, that people would come from people that we would reproduce. It's not inevitable. God could have set things up any way he wanted. And what we talked about last week was, well, then we interpret what God did as an intentional artistic decision that has some meaning. Same thing here with starting with a man and a woman alone and then a child coming later. He could have set things up any way he wanted. Could have started with a family, could have started with a parent and child, could have started with multiple generations. Instead, he starts with a man and a woman alone. And what the author of Genesis says is, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. When you see a therefore in Scripture, what it means is the author is trying to reason with you. He's appealing to your logic. And he's saying, therefore, we look at the original example. We interpret what God did, making Adam and Eve first, and we say that's normative. Just as the husband-wife relationship was first in the beginning, just as it was primary, it's supposed to remain first moving forward. It's supposed to stay the primary relationship. It's supposed to take priority over the parent-child relationship. Why? Because that child has to go and then form a marriage bond himself or herself. And for that to happen, the parent-child relationship bond has to break. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Husband and wife, one flesh, indissoluble, permanent, parent-child bond, made to be broken. It's made to be broken so that the child can go and form this other bond with a spouse. So that's the prescribed order. Point number one, check. Point number two, a lot of people don't follow the prescribed order. Um, this was just this week. Brittany was, was uh, gone on the women's retreat this last weekend. Um, and for the first time, I've never done this before, but uh, her folks were staying in our bedroom. So I was sleeping in our girl's bedroom on a, on a uh, trundle bed in between Reese on one side and Anna in her crib on the other. And, um, you know, I just, we give them their space usually when they sleep. I'm kind of weird about that. Like, Brittany wanted to get a video monitor. And I said, no, it's an invasion of their privacy. So um, I'm kind of neurotic about that. So I hadn't really gone into their room much when they're sleeping. And um, every parent, you know, who does this knows this is the best time to observe your child is when they're sleeping because they can't ask you any questions or, you know, pull on you or anything. But I go in, and Anna, um, you know, she sleeps with her knees pulled up under her, with her butt straight up in the air, which is, you know, adorable. And I had promised Reese that I was going to wake her up when I came in, and um, so I woke her up and, you know, told her I was there and held hands with her and everything. And my heart is just, you know, laying in there between my two daughters. My heart was so full, so completely full. I just felt like this is it. This is, this is everything. This is all I need. This is fulfilling. This is what I want out of life. And, and that, that transferring, that transferring of kind of the center of your world from your spouse to your kids is something that happens for a lot of married couples. Um, it's so easy for them to become the center of our emotional 
world, the center of where we put most of our energy, where we put most of our time. It happens to a lot of people. That article that I mentioned to everybody last week from New York Magazine, Why Parents Hate Parenting, I want to read a couple of lines from that again this week. This is from an entrepreneur and, and father of two who, quote, is very frank about the strain his children put on his marriage, especially his firstborn. I already felt neglected, he says, in my mind anyway. And once we had the kid, it became so pronounced. It went from zero to negative 50. And I was like, I can deal with zero, but not negative 50. My wife became more demanding. He continues, you don't do this, you don't do that. And he says, there's nothing sexy or intimate between us based on the old model. The new model, which I've certainly come to adopt, is that our energy has shifted toward the kids. One of the reasons I love being with my wife is because I love the family we have. And then the article goes on to say that statistically it shows that you know, a lot of people feel this way. The marriage kind of redirects its energy once the kids are born. So that's hearing it from a man's perspective. Let me now give it to you from a woman's perspective. This is Wendy Mogul in the introduction to her parenting book. She's a clinical psychologist. She, she says, Of course I wanted my children to have every opportunity for success and fulfillment. So in addition to schoolwork, homework, play dates. They each had a private music lesson once a week, occasionally a tutor for the academic week spots. The younger one played soccer. Every appointment went on two calendars, a big one in the kitchen, and my own appointment book. There was no time for anyone to waste. I got up at 6.15 each weekday to make the lunches and launch the carpools. Most mornings I went to the gym or on a power walk with a friend, then to work. By 4, when the children were back home, I was worn down, and by 10, I was nearly catatonic. That wasn't part of the plan. I had meant to spend the evening hours with my husband to watch a movie, make love, or simply talk about things beyond our little domestic sphere. But each evening, I would make a pledge that the next night I would stay up late with him. But when the next night came, I would again be an adulterer. My lover was sleep. Man's perspective, woman's perspective. A lot of people have things out of order. It's very common. This is the reason the text says it. The Bible doesn't say things that are obvious. They're only obvious to you if, if the Bible has filtered through human culture to the point that it's become accepted. The Bible doesn't say things that are obvious. It's not obvious that the husband-wife relationship is supposed to take priority. And it's so easy for it to become reversed. So there's a prescribed order. Number two, a lot of people have things out of order. Number three, there is an acid test for knowing whether you have things in the right order or not. And, and what I want to focus on is the, the thing that both of these couples mentioned, which is the lack of sex that's taking place. And this is something that everybody, you know, parents joke about. You know, this is a common topic. Oh, we don't have sex anymore. It's like you know, commonly understood. And I think the thinking goes that it's like, you know, it'd be nice, but it's not really chief among the concerns. You know, it's not on the urgent and vital list. It's on the, well, it'd be great if we fix that list. But it's, it's seen kind of as a, as a luxury, as an extra, as something that would be great if we have time. But let's, let's be honest, we don't have time. We don't have energy. So that's kind of the, the conventional wisdom. What I want to do is, is challenge that conventional wisdom that's just kind of this, this small thing for married couples with kids to be having sex less than they were before. Uh, let me read you now a third testimonial. This is from an essay in the New York Times a couple of years back. This is Ayelet Waldman. And she says, 
I've been in many mothers' groups, Mommy and Me, Jimboree, Second Time Moms, and each time within three minutes, the conversation invariably comes around to the topic of how often Mommy feels compelled to put out. Everyone wants to be reassured that no one else is having any sex either. (laughs) These are women who, for the most part, are comfortable with their bodies, consider themselves sexual beings. These are women who love their husbands. Still, almost none of them are having any sex. There are agreed-upon reasons for this bed death. They are exhausted. It still hurts. They are so physically available to their babies. Nursing, carrying, stroking, how could they bear to be physically available to anyone else? But the real reason for this lack of sex, or at least the most profound, is that the wife's passion has been refocused. Instead of concentrating her ardor on her husband, she concentrates it on her babies. Where once her husband was the center of her passionate universe, there is now a new sun in whose orbit she revolves. Libido, as she once knew it, is gone, and in its place is all-consuming maternal desire. There is absolute unanimity on this topic and instant reassurance. And what, what Waldman is saying, what hinting at, is what Scripture says, which is that sex is not a, a side issue. It's never a small thing. It's never far down on the list of concerns. We think of it as peripheral because it takes so little of our time. We think of it as superficial because it's just physical. We think of it as a luxury you know, not essential, and the Bible says, no, it's not peripheral, it's central. It's not superficial, it's very deep. It's not a luxury, it's, it's a necessity. It's why? It's the very heart of what it means to be married, and it's the very thing that the text mentions as the differentiating factor between the parent-child relationship and the husband-wife relationship. What makes a husband and wife a husband-wife? One flesh. They're one flesh, and what God has joined together, let no man tear apart, Jesus says. One flesh. It's what makes a married couple a married couple. It's what makes the marriage bond stronger than the parent-child bond. And it's it's not happening. If it's not happening frequently, if it's not happening in a mutually satisfying way, that is the test. You can say whatever else you want about how much you love each other, about how committed you are. Love and commitment aren't enough. That is the test to know whether the priorities are straight, whether the marriage relationship is still on top number three. Number four, what all this has to do with parenting. Okay, whether you're right or wrong, where are we right now? I mean, we're in the middle of a parenting series, and you're talking about how often married couples should have sex. What, What happened? I'm a little bit lost. And I think that's a very fair question. Um, but at the same time, I think it's a question that itself points to something really weird that has happened in the history of human thought. And that is this assumption that everybody has that having sex and having children have nothing to do with each other. That they're just these two totally separate topics, which we don't need to mention in the same sentence. They're, they're basically two main schools of thought about sex and children. They're totally opposed on everything else. The only thing they agree upon is that having sex and having kids has nothing to do with each other. So the, the first school of thought you could call the, the conservative religious viewpoint, which is basically that having sex is for having kids. That's the point. And then the fact that it happens to be this extremely intense, emotional, immersive, ecstatic experience, 
that is just a major fluke. I mean, I, we don't know how that happened. Um, but don't think about it. Don't think about it. Just have kids and, you know, try not to enjoy it along the way. And, and you know, it's, it basically says, ah, oh God, that wily guy, you know, he... He gives us this thing we have to do, which is have kids, which is good. But then he, he puts this moral minefield in front of it that we have to, you know, navigate it's to stay pure. You know, what a, what a trickster. He would do that to us. That's the, that's the first school of thought. The, the other opposite school of thought is the kind of the, what you call the liberal secular viewpoint, which says sex is for fun. It's for the, the ecstatic experience. It's for, you know, what you get out of it. And just by total happenstance, by total fluke, it, it results in a child sometimes. Um, you know, this view is basically like, ah, oh God, that wily guy. You know, he would do that, make something so fun like sex, but then make it a roll of the dice every time. That you could be slapped with this huge fine, you know, just to trap us. He's just trying to screw with us. Totally opposite viewpoints. The only thing they agree upon is that sex and children have nothing to do with each other. That they're just these very separate things that by happenstance came to be connected. What if it's the case that God set it up this way on purpose? I mean, that's our premise, right? That is our premise. Everything God does is for a reason. What if he set it up this way on purpose? What if it's the case that God intended for children to be born into a context of passion? into a context of mutual admiration and infatuation? What if it's the case that how often and how much you're having sex is not just the test of how good your marriage is, it's the test of how good a parent you are? Because God wants this for children. He wants this environment for children. What if it's the case that it's not just an accident that you have to have sex to have children, but that it was designed that way because only couples that are having sex can successfully raise a child. In other words, what if it's the case that the same thing that got you into this mess is the only thing that's going to get you out of it with your sanity intact? And you say, are you serious? I mean, really? Really? That's the sermon? That's the sermon. (laughs) How much you have sex determines how good a parent you are. But it's there. It's right there. It's right there in the way God set things up. And we just want to compartmentalize. We think it's all separate. We think we know better. And part of it is, you know, our, our technological advances. Where obviously now you can have sex without having children very easily. And of course you can have children without having sex now for the first time in human history. Nothing wrong with that. There's, I mean, obviously great things about that. But it just obscures the subject that much further. It just darkens our minds that much further. To, to keep us from understanding that this is something God set up. This was his good design. So, number five, giving your kids what they need. If, if this is true, if this is really the way it's supposed to work, one flesh, and this is the environment that God wants kids put into, then what that means is this isn't just something you do for your spouse. This isn't something you do for yourself, for your marriage. This is something you do for your kids. The only thing that a kid needs as much as the love of a parent is to witness the love between parents. What your kid needs is to be grossed out by you. That's what they need. It makes them feel safe. It makes them feel incredibly safe. It's what they need from you. 
And when, when you let that go, when you don't take care of that, isn't it, you're not just hurting yourself, you're not just hurting your spouse, you're hurting them. That uh, article that I mentioned earlier in the New York Times, the uh, Islet Waldman talking about you know, the, all the moms getting together and, and saying how nobody's having any sex. Her perspective in the article is actually how guilty she feels because she's the only one that still is having sex with her husband and desires her husband and how it makes her feel like a bad mom. Um, so let me read you the, the rest of what she says toward the end. She says, I remember very little of my Percocet and Vicodin fog first days of motherhood except for someone calling and squealing Aren't you just completely in love? And of course I was, just not with my baby. I do love her, but I'm not in love with her, nor with her two brothers or sister. Yes, I have four children, four children with whom I spend a good part of every day, bathing them, combing their hair, sitting with them while they do their homework, holding them while they weep their tragic tears. But I'm not in love with any of them. I'm in love with my husband. The good mother is one who loves her child more than anyone else in the world. I am not a good mother. I am, in fact, a bad mother. I love my husband more than I love my children. I wish some learned sociologist would publish a definitive study of marriages where the parents are desperately, ardently in love, where the parents love each other even more than they love the children. It would be wonderful if it could be established once and for all that the children of these marriages are more successful happier, live longer, and have healthier lives than children whose mothers focus their desires and passions on them. But even in the likely event that this study is not forthcoming, even in the event that I face a day of reckoning in which my children, God forbid, become heroin addicts or, God forbid, are unable to form decent attachments and wander from one miserable and unsatisfying relationship to another, or, God forbid, other two things too awful to even imagine befall them. I cannot regret that when I look at my husband, I still feel the same quickening of desire that I felt 12 years ago when I saw him for the first time, standing in the lobby of my apartment building, a bouquet of purple irises in his hands. And if my children resent having been moons rather than the sun, if they berate me for not having loved them enough, if they call me a bad mother... I will tell them that I wish for them a love like I have for their father. I will tell them that they are my children and they deserve both to love and be loved like that. I will tell them to settle for nothing less than what they saw when they looked at me looking at him. And, you know, she doesn't know this, but she's beautifully describing God's plan. Beautifully describing God's plan. One flesh, be united to each other, Adam erupts in poetry when he sees Eve. And I put this on your insert uh, in section number two. I actually don't even want to read this um, because the last time I read this on a Sunday morning, I was blushing so terribly. But this is from Song of Songs. It's erotic love poetry right in the middle of the Bible. Erotic poetry. Wow, I didn't know that was there. And, you know, you can read it later if you want, if ancient Middle Eastern erotica is your thing. Um, (laughs) But it's there. It's there in the Bible. This is what God intended for the relationship between man and woman. And yet, also kids. Also kids. If you look, I mean, back on that first passage, 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And then just a few verses later, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth. It's all a package deal in Scripture. That's the way God set it up. This is what your kids need. This is what your kids need from you and your spouse, to witness a love like that, to witness that passion, to be part of that, to, to live in that world. So sixth and finally, moving forward, you know, what, what are we supposed to do with this? Specifically, I mean, I guess you're in kind of one of two camps. Half of you are just lost, you know, or, you know, not buying it. But, and then some of you, maybe, maybe half as generous, but some of you are thinking, okay, so if this is right, you know, what are we, what are we supposed to do? Um, assuming that you're like most couples, and then it, that it is a struggle. You know, what's the, what are the next steps? I, I cannot help you a lot on the kind of practical side of that. You know, I'm out, I am in a little bit out of my depth. I will say just that, um, you know, I read books on the subject I think that it's, you know, it's kind of like a subject that people feel embarrassed about. Like it's something you're just supposed to know. Um, and no, how would you know? I mean, I, I don't know how you would know unless your parents were a lot different than my parents in the talk, you know. Um, and, and, you know, so I, I can't help with, with that side of it. Um, what, I, what I can help is with the spiritual side of it. So a couple of things. One, um, just commit to change. You know, commit to making this a priority. As, as unappealing as it may sound sitting here, as scary as it sounds, as much as you want to say this isn't as important, as important as everything that was just discussed, commit to changing and putting this front and center in your life for your marriage and for your kids. Um, that's called repentance, by the way. Committing to change is called repentance. And that's why we come here every Sunday is to repent of something, to commit to change in some Area. The, the second thing is to ask God for help. God designed things this way. He wants it to work this way. This is his plan. He wants to help you. Um, so you have to ask him. You have to ask him to help you. And the third thing is to forgive. Um, and I don't think there's any area that's more difficult to forgive in than this area because it's so sensitive and it's so, it touches such a nerve. But there, there will be plenty to forgive, you know, and on both sides. You have to forgive your spouse for neglecting you and putting the kids first. You have to forgive your spouse maybe for um, being so selfish and not helping enough with the kids so you don't have any energy left. You have to forgive your spouse for becoming bitter or closed off or acting like it's not important. You have to forgive your spouse for finding sexual outlet elsewhere, you know, whether that be pornography or something more serious. You have to forgive. You have to forgive to move forward. Um, And what I love about Christianity, the reason I am a Christian, is that a lot of what we talked about today, you know, we haven't, is in common with um, other systems of thought, Judaism, obviously, um, the Genesis passage, or a lot of it's just from from psychology. Um, When we come to this forgiveness subject, we're kind of in unique territory. Because, I mean, anybody can tell you that you should forgive. You know, the, the psychologist can tell you why it's so important and how everything else will, will be messed up if you don't. And any religious person can tell you, well, it's morally obligatory to forgive. But only a Christian can say, well, this is how. This is where you look to for the, for the strength to do it. Only a Christian can say that. If you look on the, the reverse of your insert, this is in section 3. 
from the book of Micah, where is another God like you? You delight in showing unfailing love. Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. You will show us your faithfulness and unfailing love. So that says, here's the secret of faithfulness and unfailing love. If you want to know what's the secret, faithfulness and unfailing love, it's forgiveness. It's throwing the person's wrongdoings into the ocean. But then how? Um, This is from, from Colossians. Paul writes, And you, who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Only a Christian can say, well, you forgive because you've been forgiven. Only a Christian can say, well, wait a second. Didn't God forgive you? Didn't Christ pay for your sins? Didn't somebody else bear the cost of all the things that you've done wrong, of all the flaws that you have, of all the ways that you messed up? Only a Christian can say that. It's the foundation of forgiving one another. So that's to start with, with forgiveness. Um, as I said, a strange topic somewhat in its narrowness. Um, and, you know, is, is church, you know, really? Um, but as I looked at this, this marriage series, all of a sudden I felt like we were just going to be joking around for the whole six weeks if we didn't talk about this first. This is what your kids need from you. This is what they, you can screw everything else up. And get this right, and they'll be fine. On the other hand, you, if you screw this up, you can pour all your energy into doing everything else right. And it's going to be really tough. It's going to be a, a huge uphill climb. So, for what it's worth, let's pray together. Father, when it comes to subjects where there is hurt and maybe even embarrassment and shame and awkwardness and disappointment and frustration. Um, it's very difficult for us. You know this. It's about us. It's very difficult for us to talk about these things with each other, to address them, to try to change. God, I just ask that you would bring healing. I ask that you would help us as a church And I ask that in each family, God, that every family that invites you and every family that asks for your help, that you would come and comfort them, that you would come and show them the way forward. You would come and help them to have the difficult conversations. We pray this, God, for our own sakes, but also for the sake of our kids. We thank you for your good plan. We thank you for the beautiful way you made us. And we we ask that as we try to live that way, you would, you would help us along the way. That you would give us an increasing sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. It's in your name we pray. Amen.